Hello, I'm Tony Cantwell, and welcome to the CMG Business Podcast. Each episode, we talk to interesting people to help us better understand and manage the challenges of business and hopefully learn from their experiences. Fire safety has reached unprecedented levels of attention over the past 10 years and has become an understandably high-profile issue wrapped around personal safety, employee safety, building safety and security. There are a lot of issues surrounding this subject, particularly in the building and construction sectors, healthcare, social housing and high-rise. And to shed some light on these, I'm delighted to be joined today by Brendan Kavanagh. Now before we get going, let me give you some background to Brendan's extensive credentials. He is a chartered fire safety practitioner, a fire scientist, practicing professional fire prevention officer, a fire safety inspector, fire surveyor and independent verifier. In fact, he has tons more incredible levels of expertise and he's a very popular tutor for CMG training, where he trains people in fire retrofitting, fire safety and healthcare and so much more. Brendan has also chaired several very high profile fire safety conferences for our events over the years. Brendan. Can I ask you, what attracted you to fire safety as a subject? Since I was a child, uh, I have had an interest in transport. And obviously, you know, fire tenders and appliances would be in that league. But I also have a great interest in aviation and interest in trains and uh, vehicles as well. And uh, I also used to go to the swimming pool in Tara Street on a Saturday morning and I would see across the wall the fire tenders being checked for the week for the shift on the Saturday and uh, eventually we built up a relationship a group of us and the firefighters and they give us tea and toast before after our swim so wow. so that was where the initial sort of interest, interest came no member of my family were associated with the fire services or anything of that nature and uh, as I say, I just had a, a general interest, primarily in the mechanical side of things, uh, you know, ladders, fire trucks, etc. Yeah. Uh, but as I said, it broadened out then into uh, fire prevention and other key areas. It sounds like a, a typical schoolboy's fascination with trucks and ladders absolutely and was it classic no no difference about it and trains did you have the trains and the model trains well not necessarily no, the no. models but I, I would have my grandfather who, who reared me uh, would have brought me on different trips on the train down to Cork or to Waterford and even once upon a time now bear in mind the poor man passed away in 1983 right. uh, but back in the 1960s uh, Cork got the first hydraulic platform in Ireland and uh, I made him bring me on the train specifically to Cork to see this fire tender wow <laughs> <laughs> so you can see what a sad case I am there. well no it's obviously and, uh, and, and so that was just... many many years before I had any professional involvement yeah. it was just purely of interest so did you decide to pursue that then into fire safety when you well it was an area that I explored and uh, I made I suppose a career decision that I left school at a young age and I served an apprenticeship and the wish was that I would complete my five-year apprenticeship 
and then I would join the fire brigade. But during that path, I studied both mechanical, electrical and fire engineering in Bolton Street. Eventually, I got to a stage where I was allowed to give lectures on specialist subjects. Excellent. And then or, you seem and to this was even before I was a member of the fire brigade. Like. And then you seem to have added over 40 years, uh, the past 40 years, a huge amount of credentials. Was it just a, kind of an insatiable curiosity or...? Enthusiasm would be part of it in that if I take on something, I don't do half measures, so I take it on fully and completely. And as I said, I thank John Butler as the first tutor in for engineering for nurturing that and seeing that I had the ability to research uh, subjects and to develop them and then to give talks on them and eventually to lecture on them. Yeah. And as I said, you know, there was a good degree of synergy between the various engineering disciplines that I was trained in, uh, mechanical, electrical and fire. And at one stage, I specialized in diesel engines and I became a compression ignition engineer. And uh, one of the first fire trucks that I had involvement with was a Rolls-Royce engine. So I developed a lot of learning in terms of engineering. And eventually, uh, later in my career, I even commissioned Rolls-Royce to build a fire tender to my specifications. Wow, that's incredible. So I've had a... Quite an interesting career. You must have, you obviously have a passion about this, but um, I'd say you must have had phenomenal curiosity. I am extremely curious about anything mechanical. Like the first thing I tried to do as a four year old was convert a tricycle into a bicycle. My mother said, I got a hacksaw and I cut the axle off and I tried to join it up. Wow, at four. At four years of age. (laughs) So uh, it's in my blood somewhere along the way that I... uh, I Well, look, jumping into the the key topic on this, which is fire. um, I remember we had a fire safety conference uh, back in CMG many years ago. And the very first speaker opened up with the comment. He, He stood on stage, put his hands in his pockets, and he said, unfortunately, legislation is built on the back of tragedy when it came to fire safety. Is that still the case? Unfortunately, he is 100% right that throughout the ages from the Great Fire of London back in 1666, we had the famous architect uh, Christopher Wren, who then became Sir Christopher Wren and was associated with St. Paul's Cathedral. He brought in the first modern piece of legislation as far back as the Great Fire of London, after it, I hasten to say. On the back and of tragedy. the reality of that is that our legislation today is based on that original law that was called the London Act of 1667. I remember when I founded CMG events a long time ago now, um, I was very keen on setting up and hosting a fire safety conference after the Stardust disaster. Now, I lost a lot of close friends in that particular um, tragedy, I suppose. But have we learned anything from that whole horrible experience when it comes to fire safety at high convergence? I'll answer that question in two ways. The simple answer is no. But the more complex answer is that development and learning has progressed 
but in terms of the community and in terms of a similar event there are always the potential for such events to occur at a future stage and I can recall at least one serious event in 2014 where padlocks and chains were on fire exits in a building with an occupancy greater than 5,000 wow. people at 3 o'clock on a Saturday before Christmas. Oh God. So yeah. there's the answer I would give you is did we not learn that if you put padlocks and chains on doors people can die and we're still doing it today. But However, legislation I would say is against, it prevents that, am I right? There is, there's a piece of legislation called the Ease of Escape Regulations of 1985 which does prohibit that but that doesn't actually ensure compliance and the modern day equivalent of a padlock and chain is the electromechanical lock that you find with access control and security systems and as recently as the month of March of 2019 I was asked to investigate a situation where a number of people were trapped in a fire escape as a result of this lock when the fire alarm went off instead of opening locked closed and people were trapped in the fire escape oh god and of course then we saw the recent we the Grenfell Grenfell again is sort of a very important piece of learning looking at it in as positive a way as you can yeah in that a lot of our population live in high-rise apartments uh, and similar structures and that we need to adopt the necessary policies and procedures and one of the tragedies of Grenfell was what was called the stay push policy. Ireland has never had a statutory stay put policy unlike the UK. Now a stay put policy is means stay where that you, you are. stay in your apartment rather than leave in the event of fire until instructed by the fire services. In Ireland the instruction is leave as soon as you discover a fire. Right. So it's a totally different strategy and approach that we have had here. Although pre-Grenfell, I was at a couple of discussions uh, dealing with the state policy and whether it should be introduced in Ireland. Yeah. I would be firmly against it and I would make no bones about that. But I would be of an open mind that if it was the right thing, I would like to pay attention and listen to it but I've firmly believed and I, I'm absolutely clear on it post Granville that stay put is not the way we should be going nor do we have that policy as I said no. here in Ireland is there I obviously I don't know um fraction of what you have on this but when it comes to these things how much leeway when you have a cert, a situation where there's a significant fire in terms of calling the shots at that time if 180 seconds that's and it I'm categoric on that yeah that in a real fire if you don't take affirmative action in the first three minutes your chance of survival and your success will be diminished considerably and I firmly believe that the actions taken in the first three minutes will give you a successful outcome so you would 
100% recommend that for listeners uh, to this podcast that you should have some sort of policy, you should have some very clear procedures in your business, your building, for in the event of fire safety. 100%. And even the most dangerous place is your own home. Yeah. And I would go as far as to say that every bedroom should have a fire detector. And the purpose of that is to wake you in the event of fire so that you gain the time that you need. You can't get it afterwards. So my advice, if no one takes any other advice that I'll ever give, is put a fire detector over your bed in every bedroom so that in the event of the bedroom being contaminated with smoke, that it will wake you up. If it doesn't, what will happen is you will go into a coma and you may never wake up. Because the main gas in most fires is carbon monoxide CO, and CO poisoning, once it occurs, you won't wake up, you'll go into a coma. Yeah, I think there was recent cases of that in some hotels. Uh, well, that was more hotel. so, not so much associated with fire, but with fossil burning equipment like gas or oil, central heating or water boilers. And we do recommend a separate carbon monoxide detector in rooms where there is a likelihood of fume in containing carbon monoxide coming into contact with somebody asleep. Yeah. Uh, and that can apply down in your living room as much as in your bedroom because as we all get that bit older, we, we tend to fall asleep beside the fire, fire or whatever. Yeah, yeah. So certainly a carbon monoxide detector in that environment is just as important as in the bedroom. And I suppose I do practice what I preach. I have the fire detectors in my bedroom and the carbon monoxide detector in the living room so that if I did fall asleep and there was carbon monoxide, hopefully the alarm would wake me up. Well, I think just even as a layman looking at it, you see a lot of advertising for people to to put in these carbon monoxide alarms and smoke alarms. I think even with new bills in in residential. Well, it's mandatory now in new bills but it wasn't mandatory in previous arrangements there and uh, certainly modern technology has made the detectors far more effective and has also reduced the risks with appliances so a combination of both would give us a safer environment and what about businesses well the big issue that people don't realize is that fire is one of the major causes of unemployment and I'll give you an example without naming anybody that I was invited to look at some uh, factories around Ireland and in the chain they had had a number of fires and on the day of my inspection in this particular factory they were bussing people a round trip of 180 kilometers so that they could keep them in work and one of my tasks in that visit was to try and convince the board of directors how to prevent fire happening because if they lost that factory it wouldn't only be the workers there but the other workers that they were bussing to that factory they'd have nothing and within a half an hour of my visit i knew where the problems were and an example of that was a contractor carrying out hot works welding in a confined space 
So I asked one of the directors, had they looked at the competencies of the contractor? Had they issued some form of a permit? And we went down as the board with me to visit the contractor and look at it firsthand. And the first thing that we met was a big sign on the wall which said, confined space entry permit required. So I looked at the director and I said, did you issue him with a permit? And he says, do you know what? I meant to take that sign down. It doesn't apply anymore. And clearly it did apply. Oh, wow. But that was their attitude. So no wonder that a number of their factories are burnt down with an attitude so is of that it, nature. Do you see that often? Is there a lax to it? Is there a kind uh, of a certainly will be grand kind of thing? In terms of hot work activity, uh, there's huge areas of improvement required. Right. And it's an area that I did specialise in, which was the supervision and the management of contractors carrying out hot works and uh, I give talks on that and training on that mm. and I do verifications and inspection in that regard particularly in the healthcare sector because unlike other buildings where you can for example if you had a leaking roof bring the contractor in on a Saturday or Sunday to carry out the high risk activity in the healthcare building it's occupied 24 by 7 so you have to put in place the measures long before I was going to say that to you, Brennan, because a lot of our uh, listeners would be in the healthcare sector mm -hmm. as well. And I know they do attend a lot of the conferences where we have specifically fire safety and healthcare. Um, what are the big issues that you would see in the healthcare sector? Well, the big issue is that the contractor, with the best of respect, they're there to do a particular task or job. And they don't comprehend the consequences in terms of the healthcare side of the equation. Mm -hmm. In other words, if you were the patient undergoing cardiac thoracic surgery and there was a fire alarm activation or an outbreak of fire, that person is in immediate danger because do you suspend the surgery? Do you stabilize the patient? you transfer them to another theatre, you transfer them to another hospital. And that is life safety critical. I imagine even post-operation, that's a big issue. Well, it's, I'm just giving the example of a live yeah. situation. So we have developed in association with the major hospitals arrangements and plans to cater for that. There is a, a person who I respect greatly called the perfusionist and they operate your life safety system while the surgeon, in other words, you're put on what's called bypass and you're reliant on this perfusionist to operate. He's your heart and lungs while the surgeon is carrying out their function. Yeah. Um, what about designing for fire safety? I mean, is there, are the current designs in healthcare in terms of even floor layouts and the likes? Well, we operate a thing called the pr principle of progressive horizontal evacuation, which means we move laterally from the compartment where the fire is to another section of that floor, which would also form another fire compartment. And the periods of fire resistance between the compartments 
will be a minimum of 30 minutes but more typically 60 minutes which means that until the fire is extinguished or brought under control the patient can still stay on the same floor but at a distance away uh, provided that we have adequate fire protection between the patients and the fire. Are there any obvious do's and don'ts when it comes to fire safety in the healthcare environment, like practical day-to-day do's and don'ts that you would see and think that was so easy to avoid? Well, the big issue in healthcare by comparison to other buildings are the medical gases and in particular the oxygen. So the protocols associated with oxygen are of vital importance that we reduce the risks in terms of sources of ignition or recognition by staff that an oxygen enriched atmosphere intensifies a fire by a factor of up to 50 times. So the curtain that's around the patient's bed is far more flammable in terms of when it's saturated in oxygen than when it's just in the atmospheric air. Wow. And what would trigger like that kind of spark or ignition? Well, for example, we, we often see the use of Vaseline and uh, the sort of title of Vaseline is petroleum jelly. Yeah. But if you look at an oxygen cylinder, it tells you do not put any oils or greases or contaminants near oxygen. So there is actually a special similar material to put onto the nose of the patient that is not your petroleum jelly. It's designed to be used in an oxygen environment. So there's one simple thing that could reduce the risk to the patient by using the correct uh, gel rather than one that could become involved in an explosion or fire. What about hazardous materials, Brendan? Well, there is a significant correlation and synergy between hazardous materials and fire and various materials respond differently but an example would be aerosols since the montreal protocol of 1993 most propellant gases are actually flammable gases so for example lpg liquid petroleum gas is used widely as an aerosol propellant where pre-1993 it would have been one of the CFC gases Mm. so people don't realize that your harmless aerosol contains gas and that it's highly explosive in certain circumstances yeah so and even in terms mindful of that mindful of, of a lot of that stuff and looking at it with just come jumping back a little bit here to the the built sector is the built sector still in a battle of time pressures and building material cost factors against fire safety on one side and that's on the other side? Well, or are we actually doing well in that regard? Well, I think I'd probably have a biased view on that yeah. from the experiences that I have. So I'd prefer not to sort of comment in terms of I would be biased and say, yes, they do take shortcuts, they are under pressure. But at the end of the day, buildings that I sign off on as a finished product are usually very much compliant with the current regulations. Now, that did change significantly 
from the 1st of March 2014 where we replaced the previous methodology which was opinions of compliance with the role and that is a statutory role of the assigned certifier and that is the legal entity now for signing off on new build and that has on paper if not always in practice giving an improved situation there that there now is a legal entity for accepting the sign off on a new premises yeah i remember talking to a builder many years ago and he showed me his um apartment block that he had just built and i asked him what was the fire doors and stuff like that and he said 30 minutes and i just made a passing comment saying would it make a difference obviously there's 30 minutes difference but why would you not use 60 minutes as opposed to 30 minutes and various things and he said legislation stipulated that the minimum requirement was 30 minutes and we've met the legislation requirements and there's no money to be got in pushing it 60 minutes but they're more expensive to install and the general feel was that when we meet legislation requirements we're doing we're, we're within the remit of where we should be um, can legislation make differences well obviously it can make differences to it but where well you have to understand at the very outset that legislation is of a minimal standard however I did have a client in October of 2018 who was moving into a brand new premises they were as a result of Brexit coming from London to Dublin to open up uh, new offices they are in the risk management business and they are very knowledgeable in terms of standards and specifications and what they were looking for was a competent person to issue not a fire safety certificate which is what the local authority issue but a fire safe certificate which is of a much higher standard so instead of having five requirements a fire safe certificate has 12 requirements and i was very privileged to be selected by this uh, blue chip company who have you know premises throughout the world in new york london and now in dublin to be the person to verify that this premises that they were assured by other parties would meet the requirements of a fire safe mm. uh, requirement and interestingly even before i entered the building it had failed well now granted once i gave my list to the various parties they complied fully with it and i was able to issue the certificate yeah but initially it didn't meet that standard although it had been signed off under the building regulations and it met that requirement but it did not meet the full 12 requirements under the first safe certificate so well again you have to recognize that ireland up to the year 1990 had no building fire regulations really they were only enacted in 1990 and i would have gone to meetings with architects designers and engineers in 1984 and at the time I had a letter from the minister and the idea was that I was to request these 
professionals to use the draft building regulations and later to become the proposed building regulations as if they had the force of law. And I was literally laughed out of the meeting. And it wasn't until 1990 that we got the first set of building regulations in Ireland. But it wasn't until 2014 that we got the first arrangement of the assigned certifier to sign off. As I say, in truth, my personal belief is we've had no building regulations that were valid until the 1st of March 2014. But is there a rush to meet that now? No, well, it's a different structure and it's done electronically. It's policed by the local authorities. And, uh, you know, on paper, it's working. The truth will be when it's put to the test where the building's delivered as per spec. Brendan, before we finally close the podcast today, I believe you're a big Harley Davidson fan. I certainly am. And you have a Harley Davidson and My family for my sixtieth birthday I'm now letting the cat out of the bag, but uh, I was sixty uh, a short few years ago. Yeah, we'd never give you um, sixty. Uh bought me a Harley Davidson for my sixtieth birthday as a surprise. I hadn't been on a motorbike for 40 years since my 20s and I have found it a great boost to my old age to give me new energy and to building up a new chain of friends and a new interest. So I have it now uh, going on for its third year and uh, as I say I've gone out on a number of charity runs which I enjoyed and I have travelled from the Hook Lighthouse down in the southeast across to Mayo over in the west and uh, I would love sincerely to be able to travel every road in Ireland eventually north and south and eventually then perhaps even be brave enough to go on the ferry over to Scotland or to Wales or to England. Oh, that would be fantastic. So Are you I'm one of those guys who, who drives around that we see, there's about 20 of you, and you're all in the letters, and you're all <laughs> looking very polite, and uh, but you're driving along and loving life. Well, they have a what's called a ride-out every Saturday and every Sunday. Yeah, and uh, where I haven't been able to participate in as many of them as I would like to it is my intention to go to a few more but as I say the main uh, work that I've done in that regard is from a charity point of view we've run a number of charity runs and we've had up to 200 motorcyclists on those Fantastic. and they've been very uh, beneficial to the charities but I think there's a lot of enjoyment to the participants because everybody who has a bike uh, polishes it up and looks after it very yeah. well. And I'd uh, say you make a lot of new friends. Of and well, I've op- it's opened up a number of doors. It's also a, a wonderful method of conversation that if I park up somewhere within two minutes, somebody is going to be asking me about the bike or yeah. going to be asking me about different things. And I've met quite a number of people I I have many faults and one of them is I like ice cream and uh, you'll often see me at Terry's in Dunleary as part of my cycle routine and I stop for an ice cream there and the number of people I've met 
well and enjoying that ice cream talking about the bike is unreal well wow. uh, and some of them would be people back on holiday or immigrants or people from the area there and so forth so it, yeah. it, it opens up a whole new area of discussion it's a little bit like walking your dog that people the common bond is the dog yeah the motorcycle is the common bond and uh, of course Harley by its very nature and name uh, it draws a lot of attention and uh, attraction in that regard there oh, yeah. can you so hear you can people your neighbors hear you coming down the street uh, I'm relatively respectful I, I yeah. don't rever up too much no uh, and tell I me this the first it. couple of days when you got on and you were trying to get familiar you hadn't been on a bike for 40 what, years 40 years yeah were you a nervous wreck uh, no, uh, and in actual fact... Did it all fact, come back? It, it's, they say riding a bicycle, you never forget. Uh, but, but the interesting thing is that my wife, Margaret, and my youngest daughter, Siobhan, were brave enough to come for a spin on it on the very first day I got it. Wow, that's confidence. So that's not bad uh, in no. terms that they both got on the pillion seat and they both came for a spin on it on the very first day that I got it. Wow. Although I am to a large degree a fair weather cyclist although at the motorcycle show two years ago I did buy myself a rain suit uh, hopefully that I wouldn't have to wear it very often and for the first 10 rides after I bought that suit I had to put it on oh. each of them so I don't know whether that was an omen or not but, uh, well it can only get better from that's, there that's it listen Brendan thank you so much for thank coming and really appreciate it okay thanks for listening please rate and review this episode and feel free to get in contact with us through our websites cmgtraining.com or cmgevents.ie and of course our usual social media platforms we love to hear your views on this or any episode Until next time.